Um, if you would turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 9, we're going to begin reading at verse 20 just by, uh, by means of review, really. I know it's been some weeks since um, we touched on this. The premise for this series had been that change can often be difficult to navigate and challenging and not only acclimating ourselves to change, but there's other people also involved in changing and acclimating themselves. And with change often comes tension and from tension, even conflict. And so we, if we know this in advance, we can prepare ourselves and by praying for grace upon us, but allowing that grace to flow through us to others as well. And so we uh, began this, this series entitled Part of the Solution, not apart from the solution, but a part of the solution. And we talked uh, about um, conflict in general and work in our first part and last part. We uh, opened beginning in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 20, reading from the New Living Translation. It reads, after the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground, and he planted a vineyard. One day he drank some wine he had made, and he became drunk and lay naked inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. Mm-hmm. Then Shem and Japheth took a robe, held it over their shoulders, and backed into the tent to cover their father. As they did this, they looked the other way, so they would not see him naked. When Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. Then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest of servants to his relatives. And so from this rarely um, spoken or taught from portion of Noah's life, we derive uh, an important principle in bringing covering. And we talked about how that those that we look up to, those that we esteem, those who are leaders and influencers in our lives even, are human like the rest of us. No matter how high a pedestal we put them upon, they are still human and they will at time give us cause not to bring covering. It will be an invitation to leave the tent, having witnessed um, their outburst, poor judgment on their part, or even sin. It will be our temptation to leave the tent and go blab it to other people. And we talked about how Ham, Ham did just that. And he was not guilty of having seen it because sometimes those things cross our paths in the midst of change and when conflict arises and in that moment it's perhaps not dealt with as best as it could have been. We're privy to things that we wish we really weren't. So his sin was not just as, as it is not a sin to be tempted, but it's what we do after that temptation arises. So it was with him. And his sin was in failing to rectify two things, actually. And we, we talked about the first last week, some, some weeks ago. The first was in failing to rectify the situation and bring restoration to Noah. 
could Ham not have done what Shem and Japheth did? Could he have not averted his eyes or turned his head and, and quickly gotten a, a blanket and provided covering to his father? Seems to indicate that he could have, but he chose not to do so. He left the tent without rectifying the situation, bringing covering to Noah. We want to, to talk about the second thing, and, and that's just sort of to quickly bring us up to speed on what we covered the last time. We want to now touch on the second thing in Ham's wrongdoing was not simply to, to walk out of the tent because sometimes we can turn a blind eye to things and say and, and convince ourselves, well, it's not my place, and, and sometimes that may be true. Sometimes that may be true. It may be above our pay grade, figuratively speaking. It may be that our words are not, or the covering that we seek to provide are not, is not going to be received because of history we may have with the, the parties involved. We can always pray. We can always seek to bring a spiritual covering, even if it's, it's not. So there may be times where, where we have to step away and not having done something as direct as we, we perhaps could have. But there is never a cause to go and start spreading the news about what somebody else has done, their nakedness and uncovering. Because Ham's second wrongdoing was to go and tell his brothers about it, not having done anything. And even having told them, Ham could have helped them, but he didn't. He left it to them. And I, I, I can only assume, and we have to be very careful about looking into this, but based on Noah's response in cursing Ham's son, the offspring of Ham, that often, and, and knowing our own human nature, mine included, was that when we tell others, when we've been hurt or we, we've seen or witnessed this sort of thing, it's often with contempt that we relay this information, or at least disdain, or, or just to spread gossip and make ourselves look better by making somebody else look worse. And so I, I have to believe it was one of those on that spectrum that Ham shared this news with his brothers. Otherwise, why would Noah have reacted to the degree that he did? And so that was Ham's second wrongdoing. And yet, how did Jesus instruct us to deal with such issues? Certainly it wasn't to go and <laughs> blab it and share the news and tell everybody about what so-and-so had done. And we touched on, we began this briefly looking into Matthew chapter 18. And um, I have previously done an entire Bible study, and I understand your, our pastor has as well, going through Matthew chapter 18. And I just, we're, we don't have the time for that tonight. It's not within the scope of this lesson, but I will touch on, on it a little bit here. And of all his teachings, as I said a few weeks ago, this, this passage here in Matthew 18, you know, we, we are very quick to quote many other passages of Jesus in red-letter words, but these were words spoken by Jesus as well. But they are very infrequently applied in our churches today, unfortunately. And as I expressed last time I talked, every time that... I have gone through this either uh, because I'm trying to bring resolution or somebody has approached me to bring resolution to an issue. 
our relationship has always been the stronger for it, having come out the other side. And so let us read here in Matthew chapter 18, beginning to read at verse 15, again in the New Living Translation. It says, if another believer sins against you, go privately, not like Ham did, but go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. And we read from James chapter 5 as well in the Passion Translation that really dovetails wonderfully with Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 18. In James chapter 5 and verse 16, it says, Confess and acknowledge how you have offended one another. The King James Version says, Confess your faults one to another. And the faults there literally means sins. And, and I, when I was young, I really wrestled at how to do that because there were no confessionals in our Pentecostal churches. Um, and quite frankly, I didn't want to know all the bad stuff other people were doing. And I didn't, certainly didn't want to confess, you know, when I was a young person, right, the bad stuff I was doing. It was enough that I came before God. But to convey, so I think the proper context is in James. We see that in light of Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 18. Confess and acknowledge how you have offended one another, and then pray one for another to be instantly healed. For tremendous power is released through the passionate, heartfelt prayer of a godly believer. In that moment when there is, there is restoration, when there is forgiveness, when there is reconciliation between brothers and brothers, between sisters and sisters, between, in the family of God, there is tremendous power released through the passionate, heartfelt prayer in that context. And so returning to Matthew chapter 18, Jesus recognizes, however, like that's the ideal, that he understands that offenses will come. Change will occur, and, and we'll hit rough patches, and conflict will, will happen. As long as we're walking this earth, we can expect it. And the ideal situation is to go and, and resolve it, confess, and win that person back. But, he says, he realizes that you may not be successful on the first try. But don't stop there. Verse 16, but if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again. You're looking not for the town gossip here, right? You're not looking to, to get everybody on your side and then go gang up on the person, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. But you're looking for people, godly, wise people of influence to mediate the situation, so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Hmm. Well, I have seen it in, in my time. It's rare that it reaches step three where it becomes knowledge to the church. Usually it is resolved at the first or the second step if conflict occurs between brothers or sisters. But I have witnessed a time where it was brought to the whole church. And because they were following the word of God, imagine, 
imagine my wonderful surprise that it actually, people were restored, that they responded. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's amazing how when we follow the word of God, it just seems to work, doesn't it? Yes, as awkward <laughs> and as much courage as it takes, yes, God knows what he's talking about. Imagine that. And then this last phrase here in, in verse 17, if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. And I thought for many years, I almost interpreted that as being, well, then you can excommunicate them. <laughs> you can cut them off, right? Treat them as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. That's how I, how I thought and interpreted that until I, I, I was, began reading through this and studying it more in depth, and God sort of convicted me. And he said, how did I... How did I treat publicans and sinners? I, I just had to stop and, and ask God to forgive me for misinterpreting this passage because Jesus, in fact, reached out to publicans and sinners. He ate with publicans and sinners. He, the, he, he was maligned because of it, and yet he did it nonetheless. Now, he didn't force anyone, but he provided opportunity. He didn't slam the door in anybody's face to say, well, you're a publican, you're a, a sinner, you're a tax collector, there's no room in the kingdom of God for you, and slam the door. But no, he provided opportunity, and the door remained open. As a bit of a, a digression here tonight, and we'll return to, to this passage, but there is only one type of person and their actions that we're told to avoid in Scripture. And we're going to create sort of a, a, a picture of this person reading several passages here, but we're going to begin in Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, no seven he detests. And so this is a, a poetic device that's meant to bring even greater emphasis to that, that final thing, to sort of ramp up to what the, the writer is, is pointing out here. Number one, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, and the seventh thing, a person who sorts discord in a family, discord in a family. Turning to the words of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and this is a rather lengthy portion. We're going to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 24, but I believe that this simply sets the context that Paul continues in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're reading from the, the voice, this is a more modern translation, and it uses some rather colorful words in this passage. Um, so, 2 Timothy 2.24, as the Lord's slave, the King James renders it servant, but it, it really is more accurately slave, and it's to that degree that Paul felt indebted to the Lord. So, as the Lord's slave... You shouldn't exhaust yourself in bickering. 
Timothy, he was writing to his son in the, in the faith here. He was writing to uh, uh, an overseer, to a, a pastor that Timothy was, and he was saying, don't exhaust yourself in bickering. Don't get caught up in all of that, Timothy. Instead, be gentle. No matter who you are dealing with, ready and able to teach. Tolerant without resentment. <laughs> There's something to work towards, isn't it? Yes. Sometimes we can be tolerant, church, but mm, it's kind of tinged with resentment, isn't it? <laughs> if we'd really be honest with ourselves. I will tolerate it, all right? But I'm resenting it a little bit, having to do so. <laughs> well, verse 25, gently instructing those who stand up against you. My goodness, that is so challenging because when, when we're confronted, when there are those who stand up against us, when conflict has arisen and, and people are like confronting us and, and often doing so very passionately because they believe in the stance that they're taking, it's, it's our nature to respond in kind, to stand up, you know, and, and puff out our chest, so to speak, and, and confront them just the same. And yet Paul's saying, Timothy, you've, you can't respond the same way. You've got to be gentle to instruct those who stand against you. Besides, he continues, the time may come when God grants them a change of heart so that they can arrive at the full knowledge of truth. And if they come to their senses, they can escape the devil's snare and walk freed from his captivity and evil bidding. Continuing in chapter 3, because there were no no chapters or verses when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. He continues, and know this, in the last days, times will be hard. Times will be hard. I, I don't think Paul really had any idea, quite frankly. Right? He was thinking the last days of maybe that century. <laughs> Not the 21st century. But it still rings true. And know this, in the last days, times will be hard. You see, the world will be filled with narcissistic, money-grubbing, pretentious, arrogant, and abusive people. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, huh? They will rebel against their parents and will be ungrateful, unholy, uncaring, cold-hearted, accusing, without restraint, savage, and haters of anything good. I mean, Paul casts a wide net here, uses some, some pretty plain language. He continues, expect them. Timothy, don't be surprised. You can expect them, right, to be treacherous, reckless, swollen with self-importance, and giving given to loving pleasure more than they love God. And you could read this list and think, wow, the world is waxing worse and worse, isn't it? I mean, things are bad out there. We read headlines, we get on social media, God help us, and just things are devolving all the time. And yet, Paul says in verse 5, even though they may look or act like godly people. Wait a minute. Paul, you're saying all of, all of these people that you just described, 
this laundry list here. Narcissistic and money-grubbing, ungrateful, cold-hearted, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. They hate anything good. All these, wait, wait a minute. You're, you're saying that these people can still look godly? Yeah. The King James Version says that they have a form of godliness, a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. They deny, they're not, as we read from the voice, they deny his power. And that makes the biggest difference. He says, I tell you, stay away from the likes of these. Stay away from the likes of these. And he doesn't mince words as he continues. They're snakes slithering into the houses of vulnerable women, women gaudy with sin, to seduce them. Now, if I could digress from my digression here, I'm a little like the Apostle Paul. I guess I'm in somewhat good company there. Um, the King James Version uh, says that uh, calls these silly women, and we, we don't have the time to go into a full Bible study, and, and I recognize that not all commentators are going to agree with me on this, and they're not here tonight, and I've got the mic, so... <laughs> Now, read this passage. The King James Version says, silly women, as we read here in the voice, house of vulnerable women, women gaudy with sin. Paul is not speaking to women in general and calling them silly. Paul had a very high estimation of women, right, especially compared to the world in which he lived at that time, all right? So he was not calling all women silly. But I believe, and there are some commentators that will support me, back me up on this. I believe that Paul had in mind a very specific group of women, society women, well-to-do rich women who had a lot of disposable income, who had a lot of time on their hands, very little responsibility, women who many times involved themselves in narcotics and alcohol because they didn't have anything else to do and they were, uh, their whole pursuit seemed to be about pleasure, these are the, the silly women that Paul had in mind when he was speaking of this. So the women that, that didn't, they were irresponsible, that, that were almost high much of the time. These are the women. But again, while he was drawing from them, I believe Paul is actually applying this to anybody, anybody who was of the same ilk. All right. And so he uses this term in a pejorative sense to apply to anyone, man or woman. These are silly women. These are like the society women who are, don't have any responsibility. and who are, are so, so let me just say that when you read that passage here in, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, don't think of just women specifically or just limited to this group, but he's using a drawing from that context to apply to a, a broader group of people here. So... Back to my original digression here. Everybody with me? Okay, all right. So, there are snakes slithering into the houses of vulnerable women, women gaudy with sin to seduce them. These reptiles, I mean, tell us what you really think, Paul. <laughs> these reptiles can capture them because these women are weak and easily swayed by their desires. 
They seem always to be learning, but they never seem to gain the full measure of the truth. And just as Janus and Jambres rose up against Moses, these ungodly people defy the truth. Their minds are corrupt and their faith is absolutely worthless. Their faith, meaning their belief system, is worthless. But they won't get too far because their stupidity will be noticed by everyone, just as it was with Janus and Jambres. Hmm. Basically, Paul's saying, Timothy, you don't have to engage with these people. You don't have to be caught up in all of their doing and try to and wrestle them into the truth somehow. There's a, a proverb or a saying that I heard some time ago. It's like there, there's no sense getting down in the mud to wrestle with the pig. You'll only get dirty and the pig enjoys it. So that's kind of what Paul's saying here. You, you've got to step back, Timothy. And so our last uh, couple passages here along this, this theme of this, this type of person the, the Bible directs us to avoid. Uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, returning to the New Living Translation, Matthew 23, 13. These are Jesus' words. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. And lastly, in Romans chapter 16, Romans 16 and 17, Paul says, and now I make one more appeal. My dear brothers and sisters, watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. Paul is finishing this great letter, perhaps the greatest of his letters, and this is how he concludes. He's like one more appeal. You can almost hear it in the apostle's voice. My dear brothers and sisters, watch for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. And so from these few passages, we get an idea of the type of person who the Bible does tell us to avoid, and that's one who causes division for their own sake. But in everything that we just read, these several passages here, it does not say that we may act towards them as if we have the moral high ground. It doesn't say that. Paul says simply stay away from them. It does not say that we have license to tear them down or to gossip about them or to act unchristlike in any fashion. What it does say is to turn away, to avoid. And in their own time, their folly will be revealed for what it is. heard it said much of my life that you give a fool enough slack and he'll end up hanging himself. He doesn't need your help. And in the end, then you will be blameless before God for not having made the news for him. 
because there's sometimes that conflict arises. And as much as we want and we, follow, we want to get our hands in there, we want to fix the, the, the situation, we follow the word, we, we, can't, we can't seem to bring about the resolution because somebody is bent on, on almost seems, if I can speak transparently, self-destruction. We need to... We need to take care as leaders and influencers in the church that it is self-destruction and not the destruction of others in the body of Christ. Jesus, you'll note in Jesus' ministry that if the, the slings and the arrows were targeted at him, he would absorb them. But the moment that they were targeted as others, oh, ho, 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 Jesus stepped in because those were the sheep of his flock, and he was not going to let them undergo the same thing until they were prepared to do so. And so, it does not say that they aren't saved, necessarily. It does not say that they're on their way to hell. From all that I read there, it did not specifically say that. We can't put anybody in heaven. We can't put anybody in hell. We are told for the sake, however, of our continued spiritual development, the development of others in the body of Christ, it's just best to avoid that type of individual and not to best best not to hang out and have fellowship with them so having digressed returning to being part of the solution back to being part of the solution it is always best to get ahead of a possible issue than to try to catch up to it once it arises it's always best to be proactive rather than reactive. And if we can extend a hand and hold somebody and pull them up before they fall, then that's always to their benefit, right? It's so much easier. If you think of a, of a train hurtling down a train track and they come to a, a fork in the road that's coming up quickly in the distance, all they need to do is move those train tracks just like a couple of inches and that train changes direction completely. It is so much harder that once the train misses that, to <laughs> throw on the brakes, put a screeching halt, all the effort and en energy to back that train up, throw the switch, and then gain momentum once again. If we can be proactive in identifying issues that may arise and reaching out, and being proactive, it's, there's, it requires so much less energy at that time. However, once an issue has arisen, arisen, I should say, ignoring a real issue doesn't make it go away. Because we, we typically, when faced with, uh, with an issue or a, a conflict, there's that fight or flight mechanism. Some of us want to roll up our sleeves. All right, bring it on. You know, we want to dig into, like, we're going to tackle this and we're going to fix this, right? Whether they want to be fixed or not, we're going to fix it. <laughs> and others of us, uh, we, we, we have that flight, right? We're just back away. Well, if I ignore it, maybe it'll just get better on its own, right? Can I get a witness? Anybody? Right? Uh-huh. Okay, I see a few nodding heads. Nobody's brave enough to raise their hand, but yeah. 
a real issue. And I'm not talking about, you know, hey, you burnt my toast this morning and I'm upset about it. What, that's not, you know, that's a inconsequential. I'm talking about real ish, life issues. Allowing the emotion of that moment to dissipate is, is often prudent. Right? When somebody, when you're confronted and passions can arise and, and the emotion in that moment can arise. And there's very few times, I, th- I can think of one time as I was uh, preparing for this evening, where I felt that passions were high and voices were raised and I felt to press the issue because I just felt that we were at a breakthrough and it needed to be resolved there. And it wasn't, the voices weren't raised in anger per se, but they were uh, raised out of concern and there, were, there was uh, empathy uh, despite the volume. And so we pressed through. But when things, when there's anger and there's issues, sometimes it, you just need to clear heads because we say stupid things when we're emotional, really. And when we'll say things in, in the emotion of the moment that we don't really mean. And we'll exaggerate wildly, right? And we'll, we'll throw out words that uh, have absolutes, words like always and never, right? We'll throw these out. And these are almost like smoke bombs that obfuscate. They bring up just smoke in the issue. And, and then they mar. The, and we're trying to get to the heart of the issue. And all of this then becomes the issue. And, and we're trying to, in fact, win the moment rather than resolve the long-term issue that is at stake. However well-intentioned you may be, if the initial emotion has not yet had time to pass, it, an approach that you take may well be seen as an attack. And you may not intend it that way. But their defenses are already up, and so it's going to be interpreted that way, and then they will respond in kind. And in those sort of situations, time, time could be spent in prayer, asking God for wisdom and allowing the emotion of the moment to, to dissipate and clearer heads to prevail. Time, however, taking that time, time, however, does not heal all wounds. In issues of greater conflict, deeper woundings, time does not heal all wounds. Time heals a scratch. Yeah, time doesn't heal cancer. It has to be addressed. Ignoring a real issue for fear of conflict or rationalizing our inadequacy to deal with it will often make it worse. Shem and Japheth covered their father's nakedness as soon as they could as soon as they could. And those around whom we spend the most time growing and developing, we're all growing and developing. I don't care how long you've been in this, right? If the Apostle Paul had not yet attained, I don't think any of us are there quite yet. So those around whom we spend the most time growing and developing just as they are growing and developing. We need grace just like they need grace. Those will inadvertently from time to time give us an excuse not to honor them. Their role in the body of Christ, their words that they speak. Sometimes the words can be true and yet we discount them nonetheless. We must not respond as Ham did for the sake of the body. We must not respond as Ham did. 
We must seek to quickly and proactively bring a covering of resolution to the issue with wisdom and prayer and not blab of another naked moment, especially to get people on our side. I certainly don't want to be cursed. I'm sure that no one here wants to be cursed like Ham was, like his offspring were, because I mishandled another's weak and naked moment. I want to seek their covering with gentleness and grace, just as I trust and pray that they would mine, because given enough time, you're going to see a naked moment of mine, unfortunately. And I pray that you handle that as Shem and Japheth did. Amen. Amen. Perhaps the best example of this in Scripture, of this handling such a moment, is Jesus, the ultimate example, and how he dealt with Judas, his betrayer. I mean, <laughs> this was a pretty big conflict. I'd say this, this issue ranked right up there, right? Scholars and commentators postulate that it was Judas' greed that was the source of his betrayal. And while I believe that there is evidence of Judas' greed, I believe that it was Jesus' lack of interest in money. He was an itinerant preacher who by the end of his life owned nothing but the clothes on his back, right? He didn't have a bank account. He wasn't hoarding it away someplace. That's, he didn't have a home. He didn't have furniture. or a, He didn't have a chariot. He had the clothes on his back. Jesus had a, um, and yet he never went without. He had a particular lack of interest in money, it seemed, and specifically the power it commanded. And because of that lack of interest, that convinced Judas that Jesus would never restore again the kingdom to Israel as he had hoped, as in fact all the apostles had hoped, as evidenced in Acts chapter 1. I mean, here's the risen Christ and and what's their question? Lord, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? Now we're going to toss the Romans out? Now with all this resurrection power, we're going to march on the capital. We're going to overthrow the garrison. No. No. And perhaps no more of them than Judas himself. Again, I'm a bit of latitude there. But when the authority to which Judas had willingly submitted was not working for what he thought was right and what Judas thought was best, Judas himself felt betrayed, I imagine. Judas had given up three years of his life. He had left his job, whatever that was, we don't really know. But he had some means of making a living. He left his family only to be sold a bill of goods? What? You're not here to, to overthrow the Romans, to, to have power? And, and perhaps convinced of this, Judas felt justified and went about not to remove himself from under his authority, but Judas went about to remove the authority from over him altogether. And when we feel betrayed that someone we trusted doesn't seem to be working in our best interests or what we think is right and, and good, 
or maybe they've done us wrong, purposefully or otherwise, how do we react? How did Jesus react? Because these wounds, these points of conflict are often the deepest, most life-impacting, and because of that, they are the most challenging to overcome. And as such, they require of us the utmost grace, an amazing, amazing grace. Remember that Jesus had known for some time what was in Judas' heart. He knew what Judas had already done when they sat down to eat the Passover. Jesus could already feel the wounds of his betrayer in his heart. As he told them, one of you has betrayed me. Perhaps his voice even cracked. I I don't know, but certainly Jesus felt that as a man. The apostles doubting of themselves even. They asked, is it I? Is it I? They they were thinking, have I said something or done something that that has betrayed you somehow? God, was it I? And so they all went around asking, is it I? Is it I? And by virtue of the fact that they even asked that question, it is proof that Jesus, even knowing what he did, that Jesus treated Judas with such grace that even those closest to Jesus had no idea what Judas had done. That's amazing. I have to confess that had I known, I might have been talking about it. And how do we react then when someone does us harm? Purposefully or otherwise, certainly conflict can arise out of, without any ill intention. But when someone does us harm, does everyone have to know? Do we feel justified in attacking the source of that, the source of that conflict? Or even if it is the authority in our lives, certainly the leaders, they wear the biggest targets, right? They're out front leading, so they're the easiest target. Help us, Lord. Do we feel justified in targeting them when they in their humanity fail to fulfill our lofty expectations? We may not talk about it. We may not spread the rumors or gossip about it. But do our actions and demeanor arouse suspicion in others? Because Jesus' actions didn't even arouse suspicion in those closest to him. And while Judas, Judas could not get beyond the hurt and the offense, even Jesus revealing that he knew what Judas had done, not speaking any words of condemnation or anything, when Judas dipped the top and he had to leave early because he couldn't get beyond what he had done. And while Judas chose not to extend the grace, to, to receive the grace, that is extended and available to every man, woman, and child. Jesus was the epitome of grace to Judas, to the point that no one even knew of Judas' betrayal until he revealed it himself, until he came with the soldiers and the high priests into the garden 
And yet Jesus' response to Judas as Judas found him there in the darkness and kissed him, Judas said, I'm sorry, Jesus said, friend. He was still reaching. It was Judas, it's not too far. It's not too late. You're not too far gone. Friend, friend, why have you come? He was asking Judas still, nonetheless, take inventory of what you're doing here, Judas. Choosing to be part of the solution to a problem is in no small part choosing to be like Christ. And I've heard it said, I'm not the author of this, but I've heard it said that we are no more like Christ than we have when we have suffered unjustly as he did and yet respond graciously and seek to cover others. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stand with me tonight as we come to a close. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It is part of this human condition as we live this life. We're bumping along like bumper cars. We hit each other and jar each other and our opinions and the conflict will arise, and it's really then a matter of just how we deal with it, whether we do so biblically or not. But no problem that involves you can be biblically solved without you. You must be part of the solution. We're going to close in prayer this evening. I ask you all to pray with me for grace. Pray for grace. Pray for the courage to cover. Perhaps you are in the midst of a situation that you know that there is conflict. Perhaps you haven't dealt with it properly. Perhaps you've avoided it. If you're not dealing with it now, just give it time. It'll come. Pray for the courage to deal with it biblically. And then having followed the biblical steps, the prescription that Jesus Christ himself gave us, pray again for more grace for you and for the other person. Because what is at stake here is the wholeness of the body of Christ here. Amen. Your brothers and sisters. Hallelujah. Let's pray in closing. God, I thank you, Jesus. Oh, God. I know, Lord Jesus, that when, when things arise, God, in our human condition, we try, to, we try to skirt it. We try not to address it, God. We try to leave it to others, Lord. And yet your word is plain, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God, we, we don't deal with those who don't want to be dealt with, God, and yet we take the steps and then leave them to you, God, and we pray for them. God, hallelujah. Hallelujah. God, and I pray grace, Lord, encourage Jesus. God, to follow your word. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I pray, God, that we submit to your word, God, for it is always the best thing to do. Lord, hallelujah, hallelujah. 
God, in Jesus' name, Lord, that even if we're not facing something right now, God, in the weeks and months and even years that are to come, God, when these conflicts arise, Lord, when perhaps we're wounded or, or God forbid, we wound others, Lord, I pray that these words, these scriptures, God, this, this course of study that we've gone over, Lord, that you would bring it back to our minds, God, that we would not just be hearers of the word, Lord, but that we would be doers of the word, God, hallelujah, hallelujah. God, I pray for your amazing grace, Lord. God, to run through the body of Christ, Lord. God, between us all as brothers and sisters, Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. God, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave us the ultimate examples, Lord. When you dealt with Judas, when you dealt with the very hands of those that crucified you, Lord, hallelujah. And I pray, God, when others even seek to crucify us, that we would respond in kind. Jesus' name, hallelujah, hallelujah, with the grace and forgiveness that is only from you, God, but it is not found within ourselves. It is only from you, God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Thank you so much for your attention to the, the word tonight, church. Amen.